So today I will be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you want to open your Bibles and follow along, um, then it will be in Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I will be reading from NIV. You therefore have no excuse, you who have passed judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Thank you, Ilza, for reading. Uh, the Bible so uh, so clearly. Uh, may I add my welcome to that of Andres, especially if this is your first time. I see some new faces. Uh, I had an opportunity to greet some, not others. We will greet you properly a bit later, everyone who's new here, especially if you're a student. Um, it's a good Sunday to be around. We'll talk about that in a while. So um, please do keep uh, Romans 2 open in your devices or in your Bibles. There are some seats here. Uh, so if you want to have a seat, second rows almost, well, three seats here, few seats there. Anyone who wants to sit down, we have some spaces. Great. Well, anyway, uh, let me begin this time not by a question. Let me begin this time by a story. Uh, back in my primary school days, I had a very good English teacher. She taught us really well, but she was also fair and strict. I didn't particularly worry about it because I came from the teacher's family. In fact, my mom and dad worked in the very same school. And also because I had already picked up English from the age of eight. So in my English class, I was a bit ahead of most of my classmates. Now, what often tended to happen was my classmates didn't do their homework. It happens sometimes. And they said that they have forgotten the homework at home, which made my English teacher angry. So she made them walk back home and bring it in. We lived in a very small town. It was doable. <laughs> the whole thing made me, however, very feel very superior. In my mind, I said, ah, oh, Come on, off you go, off you go. Because this, of course, never, never happened to me until it did. <laughs> One day I came in for my English class and I realized I 
hadn't done my homework. Well, what do you do? Of course, you say that you have forgotten it at home. <laughs> to which my English teacher responded as follows. Do you think you are special? Do you think that you should be excused just because your mom and dad are teachers at this school? Or because you are ahead of your class in English? Well, the default answer in my head was, well, kind of, yes. <laughs> my English teacher seemed a bit harsh back then. Well, my mom still keeps in touch with her, um, and she says that my teacher is very pleased that now my whole life is in English. Uh, but anyways, back then, she was very right. She was very right. My status as a teacher's son or my extra knowledge in English didn't make me exempt from doing my homework. I should, therefore, not be treated differently. Now, friends, in our series on Romans, the Apostle Paul picks up an argument with someone who thinks he is special and should be treated differently. And although Paul names his opponent explicitly only in verse 17, which is going to be next week, we have many hints along the way that Paul is conversing with Jews. But what's the matter? What is the issue? Now imagine, imagine the church in Rome listening to Paul's letter while sipping Earl Grey tea, you know, with peppermint chocolate in a kind of nice home kind of atmosphere. And they have just finished listening to chapter one. And you can see how some in the crowd are nodding with approval like this, even briefly interrupting the reader with a comment. Oh, yes, God rightly judges all these godless, impure, and gay sex practicing Gentiles. They deserve to die. To which the reader, re reader of the Romans in the church replies, well, let's continue listening to Paul and what he has to say in chapter 2. Well, they didn't have chapter divisions back then, but anyways. Paul has obviously anticipated such a reaction from his fellow Jews. And here is his response to the God's judgment approving religious person in the crowd. And I think you can break, it, break our passage down as follows. Verses 1 to 3. The approval of God's judgment doesn't deliver you from it. Verses 4 and 5, the delay of God's judgment should lead you to repentance. And finally, verses 6 to 11, the fairness of God's judgment means you really should repent. I mean, don't worry if you didn't catch these headings. I'll, I'll go one by one through them and repeat them. But why, why, why is that the case? Because God has no favorites. I love in NIV, it's actually favoritism. In ESV, it's partiality. God does not have any favorites. He's rightly angry with the sin of the Gentiles in chapter one, and he will judge the sin 
of the religious person in chapter 2. On his righteous judgment day, everything will be equalized. Hence the dramatic sermon title, Equalizer, the Judgment Day. I don't know what you expected as you came in, but that's, that's our God, Equalizer, the Judgment Day. Now, why, why does Paul want everyone, so both groups, Jews and Gentiles, to know this? So that everyone, all, would place their trust in the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can only ever be right with God because of his saving power revealed in the gospel. This right standing before God can only be received, received by faith and nothing else. That's why. I think this is something that so many moral and religious people even today, find really hard to get their heads around. And this is something that we today, we, even Christian, will do well to pay careful attention to, so that we never presume on God's kindness and patience. Now, keeping that in mind, keeping that in mind, let's turn to our text and, and see some of the content and, and reasons behind what Paul says. So firstly, the approval of God's judgment doesn't deliver you from it. Paul says to his Jewish opponent, when you judge someone, you judge yourself before God. Now, one may say, uh, well, you should not judge at all. Isn't that what the Bible, isn't that what Jesus says? Jesus has said, do not judge. In the widely misquoted Matthew chapter 7. But is judging bad in itself? Well, judging means distinguishing between right and wrong. Everyone does it. The only difference is, is the definition of right and wrong, isn't it? Everyone judges. Hey, hello. When someone, example, when, when someone steals your bike or a computer, it is right to call it evil, right? If someone wants to sell your child drugs, it's, it's right to call it evil. Absolutely right. It is right to desire justice and to desire the right punishment for it. And that is why laws, that is why police, and that is why courts exist in our society. So judging in itself is not wrong. And so not judging is not really an option. To not judge the people of chapter one, if you were last week with us, is to approve of their behavior. Oh, this is exactly how many churches worldwide end up in a big mess regarding the LGBTQ plus plus people at the moment. The problem, however, is not agreeing with God's judgment um, of other sinners. The problem is thinking that my approval of God's judgment delivers me from it. 
That's the point Paul is making in first three verses. Well, my approval of God's judgment doesn't excuse me. Because you see, in verse 1b, because of practicing the very same things. What, what, what matters is not who you are, Paul says. And what benefits you might enjoy, what matters is what you do. You see, the person of chapter 2, verse 1, would proudly say things like, I am not a murderer. You know, like these savage Gentiles. But Paul implies that deep down in his heart, well, he surely is angry with someone, maybe with his brother or sister, which Jesus equals to murder. Well, he might not be stealing people's bikes or computers. Oh, but he must covet some of these things very badly in his heart. And he's not sleeping with other men and women or both. But boy, what he does when he's left alone by himself with his electronic devices. So what matters is what you do. But what you do, says Paul, is determined more by your heart, not by your hands. And that is what Paul wants his opponents to see when they hear about practicing such things. So Paul drives home his point in, in verses 2 and 3. A glance at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Again, the religious person would completely agree with verse 2. God is right to judge the Gentile practicing, you know, these things. But in his case, in his case, God should make an exception. Now, he would reason that because of his special relationships with God, his special sign, circumcision, and his special revelation, the law of Moses, the right thing for God to do would be to save, not to judge. That would be his reasoning. And I think that's implied in Paul's rhetorical question in verse 3. Or do you suppose that you should escape the judgment of God? So again, the point and the rhetorical answer of Paul is, you do the very same things you judge. Therefore, you will be judged. Now, friends, it is all too easy. I think Andres really set us up well with, with a theme. It's all too easy to see why others around us are wrong. Well, completely failing to see our own faults sometimes. You know, when I organize something and there is, you know, low commitment from people, I am quick to judge. But what about my own commitment to other people in other times when someone else is taking an initiative? Or I might say, you know, people are not friendly. You know, no one invites me 
over, but what about me? Am I showing any initiative? Am I showing initiative in meeting people? Or I may notice and judge those, you know, latecomers on Sunday, nothing personal, no one, <laughs> while not paying any attention to always being late on meetings. You know, I'm very quick to see, you know, those other people, but what about myself? Now, can we do any health check to know where we stand? Is there any way where we can do any health check? Yes, we can. And ask yourself these, you know, at least a couple of questions. Do I feel like a hopeless sinner? Whom God would have, you know, a perfect right to cast off even this minute because of the state of my heart and my life. Do, do I feel like that? And when you consider how those outside the church live, do you shake your head and judge them in your heart? Or do you think, you know, my heart by nature is actually just like theirs? It just shows itself differently. Here's some health check questions that are really helpful, I think. Why might a religious person still think they are okay before God? I think that's verses four and five. Verses four and five appear to be suggesting it is because God doesn't judge them instantly. So here is the second point. The delay of God's judgment should lead you to repentance. So look at verse four. Paul continues, or do you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul's opponent nodded approvingly at God's present judgment on the Gentile sinners. Do you remember? But because God didn't visibly judge him now, he presumed that God must be pleased with him. You know, I don't experience any bad things in my life currently, so I must be in God's good books. Every day I experience God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, and so I suppose I can go on in my hypocrisy, condemning evildoers while, while doing actually the very same things. And that is called living in cheap grace. You've heard the term before, cheap grace. That is no grace at all. To live in the true grace, my friends, means a totally changed thinking about myself before God. The word Paul uses for this is repentance. That's repentance. Repentance is a technical term that describes a 180 degrees change. Well, let's say, let's say you decide to go and see the Bobby movie on a Sunday morning. What a crazy idea, isn't it? And, and because, you know, that's your only day off and you think that you have deserved it. But as you approach Forum Cinemas, it dawns on you that it is Sunday and all your brothers and sisters are in gray space. 
So what you do is you, you repent, meaning you change your mind and you turn exactly 180 degrees and you walk down Chaka Ila to Gray Space. <laughs> what a beautiful idea. Bobby movie or Grace Church service. Well, that's what responding to God's kindness, patience, and grace looks like, my friends. Exactly like that. And, but Paul's opponent didn't see it that way. And so Paul is warning him about his heart and impenitent heart. Verse 5. But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, here is the biggest mistake a religious person makes. They think that because they are not judged now, they will not be judged at all. Someone like that might be even saying to himself, well, I am excited to see what God has in store for me. To which Paul would respond, my friend, God has in store for you nothing but judgment, nothing but wrath. If you are not under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're done. Well, this week, um, Robert Smith sent me this most helpful quote from Matthew Henry, which echoes just this truth. Here's a quote from uh, Matthew Henry. Whoever will not be ruled by the grace of Christ will inevitably be ruined by the wrath of Christ. Can I say it again? Whoever will not be ruled, governed by the grace of Christ will inevitably be ruined by the wrath of Christ. Well, I, I think John Stott, John Stott, a, um, a renowned um, British pastor in the 20th century, um, in his commentary on Romans, came up with this really helpful illustration about an MP3, you know, kind of MP3 player recorder around our neck recording all our thoughts and words all the time. But we could, we could slightly modify the illustration. It is as if our mobile phone's voice recorder is on all the time. And this voice recorder in our mobile phone, it records all our thoughts and it records all our words. And when God's final judgment comes, God will press play before everyone. And the content of it is going to be judged. Well, I don't know how you feel about that. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? It's a bit terrifying. Well, some, some of us upon hearing this will almost faint now. <laughs> if you are a person who's particularly you know, sensitive to your sin. I mean, you see every dust, uh, every dust in your life as kind of condemning you. Now, may I, just, may I just reassure you that Paul is not talking to you at the moment. 
Now, if you cringe any time you, you stumble or fall into a sin and you, you quickly run to sort of confess and repent before God, then Paul is not talking to you at the moment. Paul, Paul would assure you of your right standing before God. Paul speaks here to a person who has a false assurance, who thinks he needs you know, his need for repentance ended with conversion. You know, the last time I said to Jesus, I'm sorry, was you know, 10 years ago when I became a Christian. To such a person, Paul would ask, do you deep down think there is no voice recorder on? Or that you can stand before your own judgment when the voice notes are played? And here's again Paul's point. Paul would plead with such a person to accept that your own values will condemn you and that you will need to be given a right standing that you could never achieve yourself. So, so a religious person thinks he is exempt from God's judgment because of who he is. He goes on sinning because God doesn't judge him now. But that's a deception because God will eventually judge him. And I think Paul drives his point home in verses 6 to 11. God is really going to judge everyone, Paul says, according to the same standard. According to what they do. God has no favorites, so you really, really must repent. So my third point here, the fairness of God's judgment. The fairness of God's judgment means you really should repent. I think Paul makes, um, God's verse 6 and 11, he makes his key point in verse 6 and 11, basically the very same thing, God has no favorites. He, has, he shows no partiality. In our English translation, the link between God's judgment and his fairness is, is not so obvious. But in the original, verse 6, if you glance, verse 6 starts with the word who, not he. Thus closely linking verse 5 and 6 together. Well, let me read again how it, so it sounds. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, who will render to each other according to his works. God does not show any favoritism. God is fair. He makes no exceptions. It is part of the righteousness of God. Here is just a couple of examples from both the Old and the New Testament. One passage from the Old Testament, one passage from the New Testament that echoes that. Here, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And here, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us know, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, because the idea of favoritism is so deep-seated in the mind of Paul's opponent, he, uh, Paul repeats himself twice. Paul does it by way of you know, structuring verses 6 to 11 in sort of A, B, B, A. Well, this is get a bit, a bit dense, so if you want to sort of follow particularly closely, that will, that will help. Sorry for that, but there's no other way to do that. Um, so... Um, Follow with me. Verse 6, so A, God has no favorites. Uh, verses 7 to 8, it's B, to those who do well, he will give eternal life. But to the disobedient, wrath and fury. And again, verses 9 and 10 mirror verse 7 and 8. Again, the second B, tribulation and distress to all evildoers, but glory and honor for all who do well. And then A, again, God has no favorites. Now, I think on the surface, on the surface, Paul's words seem plain and clear, but they also raise a potential conflict. Now, is Paul basically promoting here works righteousness? Now, how does the language of doing good and evil and eternal life in 7 to 10 fit with the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith in, in chapter 117. Now, I suggest we start by asking the question, who are the two people groups in these verses? Now, the obvious division seems to be between Jews and Gentiles, but that can't be right. Why? Because both these groups end up included among those who are either condemned or saved. So it can't be, the division can't be between Jews and Gentiles. So there must be another division in Paul's mind. Now, some suggest that because group B are clearly sinners, that group A is hypothetical. I mean, it can't really exist. Since later we will see in chapter 3, Paul says, all are sinners. Everyone. There's no one righteous. But it appears that the two groups um, you know, of people, um, therefore, are A, believers, and B, unbelievers. Not sinners or you know, perfect people. Not Jews and Gentiles, but simply believers. And unbelievers. I think Christopher Ash, um, uh, another pastor and, and, and writer, in his commentary gives some persuasive reasons. Again, a little dense moment. If you can follow, that's great. If you sort of slightly nod, that's all right. Reasons why we have believers and unbelievers here. Firstly, both people groups actually exist. Notice Paul doesn't say, if anyone would actually seek glory, you know, God maybe would give 
them eternal life. No, he doesn't say that. Uh, secondly, group B is described as not obeying the truth, verse 8, which is description of unbelievers. The opposite of that is obedience of faith, which is a description of a believer. Three, the context of verses 4 and 5 that we just read is not sin versus sinlessness, but repentance versus hard and impenitent heart. This suggests that group A is not sinless, but penitent. That is a believer. Four, group A is not described by their moral achievement, but by their, the direction of life. It, it, do, do, do you hear the phrase, seeking with patient endurance? So doing good in verse 10 is not a moral achievement, but simply a way of life. And finally, group A gets promised a reward, eternal life. And that is only ever the destiny of a believer. So for all these reasons, it makes sense to view the two groups here as believers and unbelievers. In that way, there is no conflict between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul is not suddenly promoting works righteousness, that you can be in right relationships before God based on your own merit. So let, let me summarize but we, b before we um, wrap up this morning. Paul has been talking, taking up, sorry, an argument with a religious person. This person thinks he is exempt from God's judgment because of who he is, uh, a Jew. But Paul argues that God's judgment is based on what you do. And his patient kindness now doesn't mean he will not judge him at all. Rather, because God does not have favorites, he will certainly judge everyone, believer and unbeliever, according to their works. So Paul's opponent should really repent. Now here is the question as, as we think about wrapping this up and closing, which I think is a question that kind of hangs in the air. What does it mean for a believer to be judged according to what he has done? I think that's the question. What will happen once all our voice notes in heaven will be played at the judgment day? What's going to happen? So I think, firstly, what it does not mean. This cannot mean that we will, you know, get what we deserve. Because then no one would be saved. Don't you agree? No one. Nor can it mean that our deeds, they need to reach a, a certain standard before we die, nor that our assurance rests even 1% on what we do or what we will do, because it always rests 100% on the obedience of Christ. 
So it can't mean that. It can't mean that once our life is played before God and everyone else, we will get what we deserve. That'll be contrary to the gospel. Now here is, I think, what it means. It means that our works are the public evidence of our faith. In the last judgment, the full disclosure of our lives will be accurately, uh, we are accurate proof whether or not we are believers. It will be no use in court to say that, you know, mentally, mentally I believed, or kind of verbally I professed faith in Christ. And maybe I, I did, you know, some of the right things, some of the right, um, you know, um, rituals. Paul says that will not do. Without the evidence, we shall be condemned as frauds. And so, so my friends, we are saved entirely by God's grace. Paul is so sure and Paul is so confident in the gospel because it's God's power for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. So we are entirely saved by God's grace through faith, but judged entirely by our works. Because true grace is always grace which works by changing the heart. Sometimes we can't see it so well. Maybe sometimes other people in our lives see much better than we are, but that must take place. So here's a cliffhanger for, for next week. It leaves us with quite a few unanswered questions, right? But don't worry, Paul is going to unpack later on in Romans some of the things that he is merely setting up now and leaving us with questions. But if, if, if what he says here today is true, then we really must, then our life must be a life characterized by repentance, okay? Well, this is the, this is the force of Paul's argument. Even as Christian, I have such well-developed strategies for avoiding repentance, for justifying myself, for justifying my behavior while condemning others, that I will want to avoid repentance. And Paul would even to us as Christians say, make repentance your lifestyle. So friends, we really, really must repent. Let's close with a prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you want to hear us, that those really strong words that Paul says to all those who think they are okay because they simply think that they are better. So Father, as we've heard these words, please, please impress this on our hearts that approving of your judgment of all the other sinners, it doesn't really save us. And sorry, Father, if we've ever thought that simply because we go to church or because we 
attend this or that Bible study or because we take Lord's Supper, it makes us exempt from your righteous judgment. So, Father, Father, please, as we experience your grace and kindness, as you do not hand over us to all the potential consequences of, of, of our deeds, that we might come to you in humble repentance, confessing, Father, that our hearts are as sinful as those of our non-Christian friends. So please, please make us known as the humblest people in our workplace or in our universities or lecture halls. As Father, please, please, as we await your great and awesome judgment day, where all our lives will be played and played before you, may we cast all our assurance and confidence and trust at the feet of the Lord Jesus, at his gospel that only saves. So Father, please, please make the repentance our daily habit confessing where we have been wrong, pleading with you for grace and mercy, and trusting that your death on a cross is sufficient enough for our eternal assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.